Hi there. Welcome to this episode of the Money and Markets podcast presented by Herman Finance. My name is Steve Herman, and today I will be your host for this week's episode. I'm so excited to have on my podcast my friend Alex Schober, a Latin American research analyst for Frontier View in New York City. Alex and I met through studying for the CFA Level 2 together. Unfortunately, we're still studying for that exam as it's been canceled a few times, but we've known each other now for about a year, and I'm really excited to have him on my podcast as a guest today. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. So, Alex, I'd really love to first get a little bit of background on you, if you don't mind. Could you please tell the listeners really how you got into the financial markets, uh, how you started getting interested in markets, and you know how you got from, let's say, graduating college to where you are today? Sure. So, to preface all this, I view markets more from a very macro standpoint. My educational background is mostly economics. Uh, for example, I've got my master's degree in economics from Johns Hopkins Sice, and I have interned for a hedge fund once uh, while I was in the master's program, which is kind of what piqued all my interest in financial markets. But uh, my current job is mostly focused on just the, the econ, the politics, how that impacts businesses. And my viewing of financial markets, especially is something I like to do on the side, that's something that's just like a casual observer or something that I think is interesting. But also the markets that I cover happen to be incredibly volatile and to require me to have some knowledge of what's going on in the markets in those particular countries. That's awesome. Uh, that sounds really cool. Uh, could you tell us a little more, if you don't mind, what kind of role that you're in now? How, how do you use your uh, macro I, I suppose, uh, nature in terms of uh, how you view markets uh, in this role? Sir, so I effectively am an economist for Chile, Peru, Argentina, and Uruguay, so the Spanish-speaking Southern Cone. And my firm, Frontier View, what we do is effectively connect the macro to the micro for our multinational clients. So, for example, I will do economic research on Argentina, uh, try to create some sort of sort of forecast or storyboard about what I think is going on in the country, what will happen over the next two to three years, how that impacts the business that we're talking to. And again, this is mostly multinational corporations and not investors. Either way, still relatively applicable uh, skill set. And then I'll either write a report or give a presentation or what have you. So again, my background is more from a traditional economics background as opposed to, you know, bottoms up, super in the numbers equity analyst. But I do like to see at least how what I'm analyzing impacts, say, the Argentina ETF or the Argentine sovereign situation, which has been kind of a mess over the last two years. But, you know, effectively in my job, I have needed to wear not just the economics hat, but also understanding how that impacts businesses and how that also impacts investors. Right. That all makes sense. Uh, you know, it's funny you say the, I think you said the Argentine, Argentina ETF. I know we were talking about the Brazil ETF months ago. I, I don't recall when I asked you, it might've been in the summer. I think it was at 25 and then it went to 30. And then from there, I actually haven't followed it. But, you know, I think it, based on what you had said, I think you had given me a little bullish indication in your view and you know unfortunately i did not follow up on that but uh it's definitely interesting to see how covid and how all the different political 
turmoil that the Southern Cone has faced really does drive equity prices in those countries, definitely being more volatile than anything we see in the States. Well, the buy everything rally has not has not escaped the Southern Cone either, despite all the risks that exist there. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't honestly followed much of that area of the, the world. Quite frankly, I don't all that, know all that much. And so I, I think it's really great to have you on here just because, you know, you can educate the listeners, of course, but also just get me more knowledge on something that I don't really understand or, you know, haven't really read much. You know, I, I do know that sovereign debt is always discussed and politics are almost much more important, I would think, than in the states with regard to equity prices and how business consumer confidence works. At least that's my understanding. Absolutely. I actually wanted to ask you, now that you mentioned you're, you kind of look at a lot of economics from a macro perspective, you have, you know, your basis is an econ based on, you know, how you got into this. And you mentioned that you, you kind of contrast that with the traditional equity analyst kind of bottoms up in the numbers. That's actually kind of how I like to run my portfolios, at least for my, my own personal finances. And so I wanted to ask for yourself, do you use sort of a macro view when you manage your own money or is it more bottom down or rather I should say bottom up or, you know, how do you view that? I like to figure out what the story is, uh, whatever, whatever I'm investing in. And usually that requires me to know what my strengths are. And I know that my strengths are identifying the trends in the economy, identifying if there's a political risk event that I can have a view on understanding the overall trends from an industry standpoint really high up as opposed to what the balance sheet of a particular company obviously i know that that latter skill set would benefit me significantly in my career as an investor but when it comes to my own money now or my own theoretical money now it definitely behooves me to follow whatever my strengths are which is understanding okay that i think this country is outperforming compared to expectations, underperforming versus expectations. Or I think that this trend in the U.S. equity market, for example, is going to have legs for a couple more months. So I might as well buy and hold this ETF or stock as an expression of that. That all makes sense. You make an interesting point, really. I wanted to highlight this is that Number one, you can. There's many different ways to succeed as an investor. You know, for myself, I know I've done pretty fairly well with you know kind of a bottom up numbers balance sheet, as you mentioned, type of approach. But I've also seen many hedge fund managers, many many people with a lot of success in the field that have a similar strategy as you. You know, I want to express a view that let's say AI is going to be huge in ten years, or a VR, or any of these different industries. Or I'll say, you know, six months from now, I think interest rates will be here versus there. And so that that sort of investing is, I don't know if it's more popular nowadays, but I think a lot of retail people are looking at the, the markets at, in that sort of a framework is that, you know, I think marijuana will be a big business in the future. I don't necessarily know which company will succeed from A to B, but I know if I buy this ETF, I can get exposure to that. Uh, strength. And so that's kind of how I view this retail phenomenon of what we've seen really since March. Yeah, exactly. I mean, on that note, when you mentioned the marijuana trade, it made me think of this, but my most successful set of trade ideas that kind of come from the stereotypical Biden portfolio, 
of having a lot of green energy exposure, infrastructure exposure, uh, and I have bought the uh, the main uh, MJ ETF for uh, the potential for marijuana legalization as well, and that did extraordinarily well for me. Obviously, this wasn't all my idea as far as the Biden portfolio is concerned. I mean, any major bank or even barons for a while had what they thought would be the key winners and Biden won the presidency. So it was easy to make a set of trade ideas based on that. What I'm saying is this is kind of more of my wheelhouse than the traditional fundamental and valuation kind of analysis to your point. Right. And so far, listen, that's been working really well. And it's it's something that can continue to work if you have the right viewpoints with regard to what's going to be popular or, you know, what investors and people will take to when it comes to clean energy and all of that. You know, I, I think it's very interesting you bring up that point is that it's it's so rare, I feel, to see in, in markets some view that is so popular that gets espoused, let's say, by CNBC or that by Bloomberg or by Barron's. And actually have it come true. What I mean by that is that almost if everyone thinks the same thing, it's almost hard to have alpha. And yet that clean energy and marijuana, all that has worked in the last couple months very well. And people have written about that. You would think that was priced in previously, but it doesn't seem that way, at least so far. Well, that's what I was referring to earlier when I said the buy everything rallies touching the Southern code too. I mean, it's quite literally everything has done extraordinarily well since March of 2020, whether or not you believe that all the risk has been priced in or if everything is overvalued or you know whatever your story that you want to tell yourself is, the truth is almost everything has done extremely well since March. And even if you think that someone should have seen this Biden portfolio idea and everyone had it priced in and it still performed really well for me, it doesn't necessarily say that I'm generating alpha or I'm a better investor than anyone else. In fact, it just says that everything is appreciating right now. <laughs> right. Yes, much agreed. And we could say, you know, the Fed and other institutions could be sort of the reason for that. You know, it remains to be seen. I think a lot of people online, at least I've been reading, that are arguing that inflation might not show up in CPI, but it's showing itself clearly in asset prices. Do you have a view on that in terms of inflation and you know, how the Fed and other institutions measure it? Should we change it? What are your thoughts there? I think the inflation story is one of the most interesting debates going on in the global macro world, because on one hand, you have the fact that there's clearly a lot of pent-up demand that's about to be unleashed when the economy opens up. You have a ton of people who were able to really beef up their savings accounts from the Trump administration checks. Obviously, the checks that went out to the people who needed it most were reduced for the reasons that they needed to be used for. But you know, you, you, the reality of the situation is a lot of people have put this money away either into savings, into financial markets. Uh, obviously, we could talk about the GameStop phenomenon. This is creating you know, wealth inflation in a way. It's not something that's necessarily showing up in CPI yet. But I am a little bit concerned that the Fed keeps the both tabs of the of the faucet wide open for several years down the road and we get to the point where all of this pent-up demand kind of explodes in maybe six to 12 months time and you do start having 
businesses raise their prices, and that does start to have an impact on CPI. And all of a sudden, we way overshot the CPI target. I don't think that's my base case. I don't think a lot of people are thinking that as their base case. But as far as U.S. inflation is concerned, the whole the idea of double super expansionary fiscal and monetary policy with in the context of savings rates being high is a little concerning. Now, if we turn over to Western Europe or uh, Japan or China, for that matter, I don't think that same story really applies. I don't really think the inflation story is that big of a, a deal. If anything, I think it's still a low inflation story. And I was reading something actually right before we talked about how the whole, the whole idea of U.S. equities being as valued as high as they are right now, as priced as they are right now. Basically, the story is that people expect the U.S. to outperform the U.S. dollar to continue to appreciate vis-a-vis other currencies, other economies in the world. And I don't really buy into that view, especially if you think about what East Asia has done to open the economies as quickly as they did, the way that they combated COVID, the way that they have a lot more room to run as far as monetary policy is concerned. Uh, you know, interest rates in East Asia are still far above zero percent, which is effectively what they are in the U.S. So I don't really understand this narrative of seeing, thinking that the U.S. is going to outperform vis-a-vis other uh, developed markets, especially in East Asia. To me, it doesn't make any sense. I would be a little bit concerned about when this narrative does start to devolve, what that does to financial markets, especially U.S. equity markets. I'm in agreement with many of the points you made. You know, I actually just saw something on Instagram today, and it was a post by someone who I follow, and he basically had a chart or a graphic of the different uh, asset classes that had performed best in two different decades. So in 2000s, I believe it was bonds were first, you know, because the timing of this really with the great financial crisis sort of led to the 2000s numbers. So 2000s was bonds first, and then maybe some sort of international stocks. And then uh, on the bottom was US stocks and big tech or something to that effect. And then 2010s was the opposite, the, the complete reverse, like tech stocks first, and then US stocks generally, international third, and then bonds fourth. And so and the guy was basically saying, okay, in the 2020s, Quite frankly, we don't know what the best performing asset class is going to be. We don't necessarily know that we can just predict the future using the past. And so I'm not quite sure if the U.S. outperformance will sustain. I agree with you. But I will say that the innovation that's gone on or that is going on, too, with U.S. companies versus others in Europe, I'll point to Europe specifically, seems to give me some indication that I think it makes sense in some cases why the U.S. markets are valued more richly. I mean, look at the FTSE, I believe 25% of it is commodity-based business. So I could definitely see why, you know, there's less innovation there. So PEs are lower and all that makes sense. But I want to highlight a quick point you mentioned. So I think of China and Singapore really as probably the best markets for growth. And they have the longest runways in terms of the companies that are there and how much the population is growing and also the mid-tier cities. I mean, I don't know if you know much about what's gone on in China in terms of macro indications or anything, but their runway seems to be gigantic. And it, it, I've personally taken an interest in Alibaba. That's one of my companies that I've purchased. 
And so I'm definitely interested in that market. I don't know if you have any opinions or thoughts on that. I completely agree. I think the main story for China is continued growth, that they have several more years of very high growth left in the system. I think the story of more developed Northeast Asian countries, such as South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, which is Southeast Asia, but either way, point being, is that for them, it's all about stability. And it's about the fact that they were open, they were able to open the economies a lot earlier. And then I think the other story, the thing that you mentioned a minute ago, which connects to this theme and something I completely agree with you about, is the technology component of all of this, where you know most of the exports in general that come out of South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, even China, for that matter, are you know very technologically intensive value-added industries, products, companies that have massive market share around the world, and that will likely be at least sustained for the next five, 10 years. And you also have startups coming out of these areas as well to address a need that hadn't been addressed by any company before this, such as Alibaba. Alibaba didn't, or China didn't have a version of Amazon before Alibaba. Alibaba has also tapped into the, the need for P2P payments systems, digital payments. Basically, I've been told by a lot of people that you basically need uh, an Alipay account to get around China and actually pay people because cash is just so, uh, such a not used form of payments anywhere in China at this moment. So it's, it's interesting that you do see the, the combination of technological advancement, but I do think there's also just the story of political stability relative to the populist notions that we've seen in Western Europe, the United States, Latin America, name your other areas of the world. You also have monetary policy that has a lot more room to run. You have these countries that have been able to really beef up their foreign exchange reserves to defend their currencies uh, in case things go awry, mostly just because, again, because of this whole idea of getting attracting assets to Northeast Asia. I think there's just a lot going on for the region overall, including China. Even if you take China out of the equation, I think that it's just a really, really attractive area of the world right now. I would argue it's probably the most attractive area of the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm heavily invested in U.S. equities overall, but I certainly have a soft spot for that region right now just because I look at everything you mentioned and the fact that, yes, they have some political uh, issues sometimes when it comes to, let's say, their you know civil rights, uh, I, I suppose, record or lack thereof. But, you know, when I think about what's gone on in the last couple of years with Venezuela and Latin America broadly, I... I'm attracted to some of the companies that are there, but the political instability can sometimes really just turn me off. And I think a lot of people are in the same boat. And so you kind of get, I think in Southeast Asia, or at least parts of it, and let's say China as well, you kind of get that sort of growth and potential without some of the potential for an uprising or, or like, let's say an election that gets overthrown or something like that. At least that's how I think about it, whether that's correct or not. I'm not an expert on the field of uh, subject matter at all, but that's kind of my thoughts. I agree. I mean, you still have your constant geopolitical risk in South Korea, in Japan. South Korea is not exactly immune to political crises. They had their former president of theirs get impeached and thrown in jail for corruption. So it's, it's not exactly like an uncommon thing. 
but at the same time, compared to some of the things you see in other emerging market countries throughout the world, it, it seems like extremely stable. Yeah, it, uh, exactly. It, it seems more moderate when you compare it to Venezuelan hyperinflation or, or anything like that. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask, I'm not really sure if we've talked about any opportunities in Africa. Uh, the reason why I wanted to ask is because I don't know if you've seen, but Jumia Technologies, which is a, I believe, a German company that has extensive operations in Africa. The, the company's stock has gone from like 15 in a couple months ago to 60. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, uh, but it's something that I wanted to ask. Do you think that in the future, Africa will become uh, more of a force to be reckoned with in terms of just pol not only politics, but in terms of business and having their infrastructure down to more of a science like what the U.S. has, or at least what other more developed countries have? So I, I, I have not heard of the company. would love to talk about that after the call. But as far as you know, Africa being an opportunity, it's been an opportunity for a long time. There are reasons to think that, look, it's a humongous consumer market. The demographics are incredibly favorable for, for growth, for innovation, what have you. I think that the, the political risk factor still weighs really, really heavily on a lot of countries, especially geopolitical risk. For example, I wrote and researched a report on Ethiopia uh, while I was at SICE, and it kind of became one of my favorite countries. I love the food. I love the culture. I thought their political story of how they created this confederation of political parties to leave the country out of a really dark time during the 1990s. I thought it was a really fascinating story. And now Ethiopia is back in the news for the wrong reasons again. So, but if you think about you know, the, rest of the rest of the continent, I think it's tough to think of Africa overall as such an attractive opportunity. I think it's one of those continents that you sort of need to pick and choose the countries in which you play, the companies that you think are gonna be the main winners, uh, et cetera, et cetera, just because I think it's it's tough to gauge the continent as a whole. And I'm definitely not an Africa expert at all. So it's it's tough for me to make a really strong opinion about how I view the, the continent overall, or even what countries I see as sort of winners or losers right now, just because it's, it's so complicated. It's something that you could take decades of education to try to understand. And it's not the education background that I even remotely possess. Me neither, honestly. I was just curious on your thoughts. Uh, I figured you might have some opinion. And it sounds like, you know, what you said makes sense that you might want to pick, have to pick and choose at least for some time until we know more about their infrastructure and, and all those different pieces of the puzzle. So I wanted to ask and kind of direct the conversation to a slightly different topic. I know we've been talking about markets for a little but right before we started recording, you know, we were talking about the work from home aspect of this whole COVID situation. I wanted to ask your thoughts on how you think companies will deal with this in the future in terms of, uh, you know, I suppose more so with white collar work, um, something like what we, you and I do. Do you think there's going to be more flexibility in the future? Might it be some sort of a perk that companies will offer? Do you think it will depend heavily on the different type, the company that you're at, or is it going to be more streamlined, you think? What are your thoughts? I think it'll be a mix, but 
as we were talking about before the podcast, I think people really do want to get back into the office, at least for part of the time. I think the norm will be some sort of hybrid, uh, some sort of hybrid system where you can go into the office two or three days a week, work from home the other two or three days out of the week. Everyone's happy. I mean, we've had this experiment go on for almost a year of everyone working from home. So it's very clear that it either works for certain companies and people or not. I think it's worked very well for me. I think it's worked very well for my company. In fact, I was basically working from home even before the pandemic started because my main office is in DC. But, you know, if we think about massive company presences that are here in New York where you and I are located, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all that once there's a significant amount of vaccination in the next six or seven months, that you'll have offices reopen and people going back to work at least for part of the time. I, I think it will become more and more taboo to require workers to come back every day of the week, which is a little bit ironic considering most companies that I can think of were less flexible with working from home even before the pandemic. Uh, I just think the pandemic has changed the way we think of an office space and the need to physically be next to people while we're working in a really radical way. That I, I definitely see the pros of working next to someone else and being on the on the floor, so to speak when your closest colleagues, but I don't necessarily think you need to do that every single day of the week to get what you need to get done, done. Much agreed. And you highlight a great point there is that I think a lot of kind of old fashioned places, you could say, definitely had a stigma about them or they had the attitude that, listen, we want to do this every day in the office. There's little working from home or flexibility to do so. It's interesting that we talk about this. I think a lot of Larger places, I guess even big tech companies had had in the past in terms of uh, some sort of policy for working from home even before the pandemic. So definitely, as you said, I think it'll be a mix, but it's going to depend on your firm. It'll depend on your commute. I think at the end of the day, maybe 10 or 15 years from now, we will have you know grad students or students who do graduate from college that sort of demand a flex work schedule, whether that's two days a week, four days a week. Whatever that will look like will be hard to ascertain right now, but maybe that's a good thing for workers broadly is to have more flexibility. So, uh, you know, maybe that is a silver lining. I'm not quite sure, but, you know, obviously we'll find that out as we move forward. Well, I mean, I can say from my end, I like it. I'm more of a morning person. I get up, I do an hour or two of work kind of early on before, I guess, normal people are awake and I'll go to the gym at like, 11 a.m. or something like that if I don't have a meeting and still work and get my work done and be done at like five or six, cook dinner, uh, or if I need to go out grocery shopping, I can do that in the middle of the afternoon without thinking that I need to physically be in the office. I think it's a nice change. It's a nice way of having a balance between your work and your life. And I, I would assume that a lot of other people feel that way. I think the big challenge for for someone like us who has been working, who have been working from home five days a week, is that it's tough to separate the work from the home in the sense that sometimes I do feel like I'm working way more hours a day just because like, oh, the computer's right there. I could probably do a little bit more work tonight. I might as well. The next thing I know, it's like 7 or 8 p.m. And I don't like that aspect of it. Like I, I'm, I'm a little bit tired of the four walls of my apartment right now. Right. I've definitely heard a couple people close to me say that 
it's hard to separate the work from just being home. We used to have commutes or at least, you know, we probably will in the future. But of course, when your commute, let's say back before COVID was 45 minutes, you kind of had that, you know, okay, I'll close the door to my office. I'll get on the train for 45 minutes and decompress before I get into my house or my apartment. So for now, that's gone. Whether that comes back, I'm sure it will in some form or fashion, but absolutely agree with you. And in many cases, I think it's a great way to balance work and life. Uh, my question to you, though, now that I think about it, do you think that it, this makes this type of environment makes it harder to network? You know, we're younger in our careers. We want to try to meet a lot of people and just work hard. And I think it's a little, in my view, at least a little tougher to meet folks organically in this manner but let me hear your thoughts please it's not just networking it's just like making more friends extending your social networks you know i I moved to new york like a year and a half ago thinking oh this is you know one of the biggest cities in the world it's going no problem at all for me to create friend groups be able to network with people i want to network professionally uh hang out with people i want to hang out with personally and just it not be a problem, but it has been a problem. I know that's been a problem for people who don't have a significant other either. I know that dating right now is really tough. I, I you know, but as, as far as the the question at hand about networking, I do think it's kind of awkward to send someone a cold email that you've never talked to in your entire life, and you decide that your first interaction is be with them is going to be over Zoom. You know, we're getting more and more used to this idea that this is the norm, but I would still much rather send someone an email and say, hey, let's get coffee around Grand Central or something like that and have that interaction with someone than the Zoom interaction. And then what's worse is if you are in a group networking situation, I've you know done a couple of CFA networking events, uh, which has been you know handled about as well as you can handle them in this kind of circumstance. But I still like the idea of being in the room with a bunch of different people, kind of feeding off that energy, seeing who you might want to talk to and kind of continuing a conversation after the event is even over, uh, having the physical, uh, you know, business card handed to you so you can reach out to them afterwards. It was just easier. And I, I think that it is something that we're all trying to learn. I mean, as, as young people in this profession and who are at the very, very beginning of their respective careers. Obviously, it's a challenge for us, but I think it's a challenge for people who are also mid-career and later career that are trying to network as well or even trying to pass knowledge down to us younger folk. I don't know. I'm just not a super big fan of virtual networking, I guess, that's the, the long end of what I was trying to say. Right. And so my thinking actually on this, we talked about this just a little bit before we started recording, is that Maybe that sort of thing won't have to be as much a worry in in the future in the sense that we will hopefully be able to work from home and have that sort of a balance, as you mentioned, in a world where we don't have to worry about a virus. So we don't have to, you know, have closures where the, the bars close at 10 o'clock or, you know, we can't get coffee. So maybe having the pluses from COVID in terms of the being able to work from home multiple days a week, plus having that pre-COVID atmosphere of you and I getting coffee. I mean, that's how we met. We didn't go get coffee necessarily, but we we met in person through 
a couple of people who wanted to study for the CFA exams, which we can talk about as well. But point here is that I'm hoping and praying, I think as you are, that we do get back to that in-person networking. And I think that will come because people in our profession do want to meet in person, just not right now at this time. And so I'm hopeful for that as well. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Yeah, so I don't know if, if you'd like to discuss the CFA exams, I would love to, you know, get into what that is. Uh, do you think you could just explain to our listeners, you know, what that entails exactly for, you know, for Charter Financial Analyst and for yourself? Sure. So Steve and I are both level two candidates. We've been level two candidates for, I don't know, it's been over a year now, just of the nature of the pandemic. And there are three levels of the exam. Uh, historically, it was offered once a year twice a year for level one, but once a year for level two, level three. The idea is it gives you the tools and the knowledge necessary to be a successful investor. Um, I think it's a great way of signaling to future employers or to yourself, to be honest, that you have the skills necessary, the background necessary to be a successful investor. It's definitely one of the most universal seals of approval that you can have professionally for this. And one thing that appealed it to me about it is that it supplemented my master's degree really well. I didn't, I never thought it made a lot of sense for me to go get an MBA after getting a degree in economics. I, it just for me, it was just kind of like, what's the point of getting a business degree on top of economics? It's like they're kind of interchangeable. But the CFA was one, way cheaper than an MBA, two, universally recognized, and three, it seemed to address a lot of the things I didn't learn in my master's program. I, I had some of the background already, but a lot of it was new information to me. So it's been a tough process. You know, I'm sure you've heard the horror stories of needing 300 hours to, to pass the exam, 300 hours of study, I should say. And I, I will probably say, I've probably done a little bit more than that, but it, it's a rewarding experience. If, you, if you're someone who is trying to get more into investing from a very formal sense and you're trying to send the right signals. Maybe you didn't have the background in finance in your undergrad or your graduate degree, then I would say that's probably your next best option. Yeah, thank you for those points. Absolutely, Alex. I really agree with what you had mentioned just now about, you know, what the CFA exam entails and you really hit on a lot of the key points as to why I decided to enroll in it. As you mentioned, you know, we're both CFA level two candidates and it's unfortunate that the exam had got canceled a couple times. We've definitely studied more than 300 hours in terms of just this exam, plus the one that we had passed at least a year or two ago. But, you know, I'm really happy that we met and also that we've been challenged in this way. And I think it's just really great to challenge yourself, as I just mentioned. You know, I think it's something that we all need to do if we want to get to the next level, whether it's in our careers or any different facet, if you have a certain interest that you like outside of work, I think it's wonderful to take take it to the next level and see how much you can do. And I think the CFA level or CFA exams, I should say, is really one way to, to do that. Yep. If investing is your passion, you go for it. I will say, as someone who has done the CFA exam while also having a full-time job, it's definitely a major test of your time balancing skills. Uh, you have to say no to a lot of things that you would typically say yes to, at least socially, while studying for the exam, but it's all worth it at the end. My boss came up with this idea of telling me the Latin root 
for the word sacrifice, sacrifare, literally means to make sacred. So every bit of sacrifice you're putting into this, every bit of studying, every hour of studying that you're putting into this, it's all worth it for some product in the end. If this is what you really want to do, then it's all worth it. So that kind of has stuck with me because there have been there have been some nights where it's just like I don't really want to study. It is it, that is what it is, but I still try to pound through it. Much agreed. I, I think it's certainly very very smart to have that viewpoint, and that's kind of how I look at it too. You know, we talk about the word investment in sense of money and capital, but also you invest your time, you invest your emotions into this. It's emotionally draining. It's something that, at least for myself, I didn't really see people for the last three or four weekends beforehand, you know, on level one and you probably similar or the same. And so it's something that you have to think about when you want to pursue this, but it's not forever. It's not every year you have to take this. It's three times. And it's something where you meet a lot of smart people. I, half of my network has come through this program or something similar or, or they, or they have the CFA and I happen to meet them elsewhere. I think it's just a great, great way to get yourself out there and, as I mentioned, challenge yourself, meet a lot of people. It's not just about the book smarts. It never has been. So, you know, for myself, I'm really happy that we've pursued this. I completely agree. So, Alex, I wanted to ask, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? No, I think we touched a lot of different things. We talked about how we view the world right now, how, you know, the working from home is here to stay at least some degree we talked about the cfa exam uh nothing too much more i, I did want to maybe like comment quickly on the the meme stocks phenomenon that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks sure please uh opine if you will i think this is the first time that i've seen something in financial markets at least since i've been alive where literally all my friends are asking me about it people who didn't, don't really know what's going on in the day-to-day -day of you know, the Bloomberg News Terminal or what's going on just like in the general S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, what have you. I've had like everyone ask me like, what's your opinion on GameStop? Like, what are you thinking about this, that, or the other? I have a couple of thoughts. The first one is I don't invest money into things I don't understand. I don't understand crypto, so I don't invest in crypto. Call me naive in that way. Maybe I need to educate myself, but that's how I feel about crypto, at least right now. I have literally no idea what a Dogecoin is. I have no clue. I don't think anyone really knows what a Dogecoin is, except for Elon Musk putting memes all over Twitter. But as far as the GameStop phenomenon was concerned, I think that there was genuinely a story behind GameStop outperforming, in my opinion, within the sense that well, everyone's at home right now, Video game sales were through the roof. Uh, GameStop had sort of a failed business model that was supposed to be revitalized uh, through their new, new CEO. There was a genuine argument for GameStop actually doing well. Was there a genuine argument for GameStop literally exploding to the moon? Probably not. And the issue that I have about the whole narrative of we're doing this to get at the hedge funds, we're doing this to get at Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera, is that any sort of crowd-based trade, if you're not first, you're last. And when GameStop started to go literally up into the stratosphere and you know Robinhood and all of them started to cut off trades, we could talk about that separately. But what I was afraid about was 
the people who joined in on this ride because they were promised a get rich scheme and the people who organized this trade started to sell in massive amounts and that cascades and the people who let's just put it this way stupidly potentially put all of their life savings into something like this all of a sudden had it melt away luckily that's not really what happened i i was very concerned about the crash the, the price literally crashing to where it was before the big build up to this but that was the whole issue that i had with this is if you want to democratize financial markets it's kind of tough to democratize financial markets if you're all basing things on what you are hearing that other people are doing. You're not making an opinion of your own. And it's the kind of the cruel reality of the game is if you're just investing in something because it's the new fad or because Elon Musk puts a meme about it, you don't understand what it is that you're getting yourself into and the risk that involves, then it kind of defeats the purpose to at least some people. And it concerns me, you know, it's like, I, I, that's what keeps me up at night is that people are putting significant amounts of money of, of, into things that they, they don't understand or way overly risky and are not properly valued. I, I just don't want people to get burned by that mentality. Much agreed. I have a couple points here that I'm thinking about just based on what you said. Number one, it really does remind me of what I've read about the dot-com bubble where people were just throwing money at anything named dot-com, no matter what the balance sheet said or no matter what the income statement might be in the future. That's one. The second piece is that I think GameStop did have a bull case up to like 20 bucks or 25 My friend Eli, I just had him on uh, last week and he actually bought at like 11 I think. And he you know gave me this bull case and I was a little worried just by virtue of my thinking, you know, it was it was worth less than that, but it did go to like twenty in short order, and he sold at twenty, or he made a hundred percent, whatever the number was, and then after that, it just seemed like everything after that was just pure speculation, or at least that's what my thinking was. I think a professor at NYU, you might have heard of him, Professor Demotoran. He actually did a valuation on GameStop, and I think he came out like best case forty dollars per share or something. You know, that's kind of where my thinking is. And the third point I want to talk about quickly, this is how I think about the run up and the run down or the crash really is that, sure, okay, the retail people did make money clearly on the come up, you know, from 30 to 100 to 500. Sure, all that makes sense. But retail people like you and I cannot short on the same level as can a, a hedge fund. You know, so when... You think about it, and all these people lose money on the way down. Who do you think is holding GameStop? Who do you think is transacting? When the stock goes down from 500 to 50, who do you think is hurting? It's the retail people. They can't short at 500. There's no way for people like you or I to short at that sort of level or any level, quite frankly. So when the stock goes down, it's the hedge funds that are winning. So I don't really understand, to your point, I, I quite frankly, the whole argument kind of seem to wash away just because sure the retail guys and gals make money on the way up but there's no way that any of them bought puts on the way down or whatever the case was it just seemed like a misconstrued argument or at least or a miscalculated one well i mean the the put options on the way down were just like so insanely priced that it wouldn't have been like at all an affordable strategy i think the whole idea was it's not like these people didn't know what they're doing. Like they knew what a short squeeze was. These are educated folks, the ones who are like leading this charge. 
uh, I read a profile about one of them who has, you know, a very strong academic background. He's not an idiot by any means or any stretch of the imagination. So like the point of all of this was they were trying to get the price so high that every time that a hedge fund was trying to cover their margins, they were losing an unacceptable amount of money and they had to eventually unwind their short. So I think like only the hedge funds that had an enormous amount of firepower were likely benefiting in the end if any of them even were. And it actually brings me to another point where I said at the beginning that this is all kind of meant to be uh, stick it to the hedge funds, stick it to Wall Street, et cetera. Most hedge funds, most asset managers have risk policies in place that don't allow them to exactly go like 100% of their capital into shorting GameStop. You know, I think that Melbourne Capital, whatever they were called, is clearly the outlier here and one that probably should not have been allowed to invest their clients' assets in such a way. And Citadel has literally so much capital that this was probably chump change for them, if I'm to be completely honest about the situation. So it doesn't, it, it, I feel like there's just a lot of misconceptions about what a hedge fund is out there to do, what an asset manager is out there to do. And there are certain things that even though they are less regulated than a typical mutual funds, it's not like they can just get away with anything. Right. And I think a lot of people are upset about a couple of things. I think the, the first piece of this, what might have uh, predated this is just people being frustrated with being home. Some have more money, as you mentioned, some don't. But the point is that there's a lot of frustrated people. We saw that on January 6th. We don't have to go into that on detail or in detail. But, you know, we saw what happened at the Capitol. We've seen a lot of that sort of thing happen more often recently with what's gone on, uh, just with people being home and being frustrated with many different things going on in the world. So that could be a piece of this. And after that, you know, when Robinhood and all these brokers did shut down trades, you know, I tried to explain to people that it's, they're telling us that it's capital requirements from their clearinghouse that's not allowing them to conduct these trades or to transact. But, you know, people will believe what they want. All I know is that the hedge fund, the, the business model of Citadel buying trades from Robinhood I don't know if it's shady, but it damn looks that way. Or at least people believe, a lot of people believe that to be true. And I don't know if I agree necessarily, but I can see why people say like, wait, like their clients are technically Citadel, but you know, you or I can open an account and we are their users kind of like Facebook in a way that that's their business model. So I can see why people are upset. So, you know, that, that's kind of the way I view it. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. Um, so if there's nothing else that you'd like to discuss... You know, I suppose we're good here. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? No, this has been an awesome opportunity. Uh, I look forward to hearing the final product. And yeah, feel free to reach out again. If you have any questions, anyone who's listening, uh, always happy to talk. And hopefully we'll be able to see each other for a real coffee or a stronger drink whenever this is all said and done. Absolutely. And yeah, where can they find you? Is Instagram better or is LinkedIn best? Uh, let me know. And, and if you don't want to spell it out here, I can type it in the description for this video, uh, this episode rather, if you'd like. I use Twitter and LinkedIn probably more often for professional purposes. And Twitter, I'm at Trotter, which is my last name with Trotter at the end. So you can spell that out to them later. And uh, my LinkedIn is just my full name. Okay, yeah, I will definitely type those in the description. That probably sounds easiest if that works for you. Sounds good. 
Cool. Awesome. So Alex, thank you very much for being here with us. I'm really glad that we could have a chat and, you know, I learned a lot. I think you, you probably learned a lot too. And I'm hoping the listeners, you know, kind of got that same experience. Awesome. I hope so too. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a really great chat with Alex and I hope to see you soon. Take care.